percentage of your clients would you say have a co-occurring substance use disorder? Like, if you had to put a number. 90, anybody give me 95, 95, 95, 96, 97, 98, 98? They're incredibly common, especially amongst the populations that you work with. So to think about how historically our systems were so siloed, they were so separated, it just doesn't make sense on the ground as we think if, how many of you guys are using CBT currently for sort of different mental health applications, trauma, anxiety? A number of you, great. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with CBT, we're going to talk about ways that you can apply those skills and use them in the context of substance use. We're going to talk about some of those applications. And it'd also be a good overview for those who maybe are less familiar with CBT in general. We're going to talk about some of the foundations, and it's really an invitation to explore more and to get more kind of knowledge and more training on it as well. So just to share a little bit about myself, uh, my name is Grant Tobik and I work with UCLA's Integrated Substance Abuse Programs and we are a research lab at UCLA that studies the, the science around substance abuse. So how do uh, substances affect the brain? How do they affect the body? What is that interaction with the client's mental health, their physical health? And then also, what sorts of treatment interventions work? You know, what does the science show is effective at helping people to make changes related to uh, at substance use, related to co-occurring mental illness? And in particular, we have a training uh, group as well called the Pacific Southwest Addiction Technology Transfer Center. And our job really is to take that science, to take that research, and to share it with providers, to share it with the community, with people who can put it to good use, who can take some of these evidence-based practices, these tools, and, and bring it to their clients and be able to apply it. Uh, we've been working really closely with a number of community providers. We work with the Department of Mental Health, uh, Substance Abuse Prevention and Control, to give providers tools that they can use with their clients in particular. And so today is going to be all focused around CBT. CBT is one of the foundational core evidence-based practices for substance use that also has a wide variety of applicabilities across uh, the spectrum as we think about things. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk a little bit about how do, from a CBT framework, how do, how do substance use disorders develop? Um, and that's going to inform our discussion around applications. What can we do about it? What tools can we integrate here? So these learning principles are important in that context. And then we'll talk about some basic strategies. I'm actually going to walk you through a couple of the worksheets that we use in one of our, our um, foundational protocols or manualized versions of using CBT for substance use to give you some opportunities to take a look at it. And then we're going to make sure we have a little bit of time to squeeze in a couple role plays as well so you can practice with it. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about some of the basic foundations in terms of using CBT, how to address substance use, and the five W's being one of our core worksheets that we're going to walk through today. Um, if you use CBT for, for depression, for anxiety, if you used a thought record before, it's going to look pretty familiar to you. So, you know, that's our, our broad roadmap of what we're going to cover here. Um, and when we talk about CBT, we talk about this approach here. It is your part coach, your part teacher, your part mentor, your part empathic client-centered counselor. And the goal is really to work with the client's needs and to help to either reduce their substance use or to stop their harmful drug use behaviors. CBT is very flexible in terms of goal setting and goal orientation. You know, when you think about somebody who has a substance use disorder, Oftentimes, that is the only coping mechanism that they've ever learned to deal with difficult things in their lives. 
to deal with the neighborhoods that they live in, to deal with mental health conditions that they also have. Sometimes the thought of giving that up forever is terrifying. Sometimes that is not even a starting point they're willing to entertain. But if we can have conversations around reducing use, reducing harm, that's all of those are steps in the right direction. Those are things that we can work with here. Um, I'm going to highlight some of the tools that you can use early in this process when people are just starting to embark on their journey to cut down, to work towards abstinence, but then also highlight the parallel processes that when we think about relapse prevention. When people have accomplished their substance use goals, they're moving forward, how can we try to keep that up? Because when we talk about relapse, relapse is common for humans in general. It, regardless of whether we're talking about type 2 diabetes, uh, regardless if we're talking about schizophrenia, we're talking about substance use, or just your individual goals to go to the gym more often. We have a really common tendency to go back to our normal way of doing things across the board. And so trying to identify those preceding antecedent situations, those people, those events that often lead us to slip back to the normal way of doing things, we got to try to learn from that and apply that. So we'll talk a little bit about how those can look in, in early treatment phases, but also much later on in the process as well. So from a CBT framework, we're going to talk a bit about how it helps us understand how do substance use disorders develop. There are these really powerful biological components. Addiction is a brain disease, but it's not just a brain disease. There are learning processes that contribute to it. And when we think about how those work, that's going to start to inform what kind of behavioral interventions can we engage in to try to help them make changes related to it. And then, as I mentioned, one of the first worksheets that we're going to use is called the functional analysis. It gives you a structured way to break down why do people use. What are those antecedent people, places, things, emotions that often lead people to use in the first place. Uh, oftentimes when you ask substance, uh, people with a substance use disorder, like, you know, the last time that you used, what led up to that? What were you doing? And they're like, I don't know, I just did. I, I felt like it. And it's like, okay, well, let's try to take a second and let's break that down. Like, where were you? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? And they're like, I don't know, I just did. And it, because when that becomes a huge focus of your life, you're not always thinking about the processes that lead up to it. So we were going to help clients learn to be scientists over their own lives and to learn to identify some of those patterns. And that's going to be the tool that we'll introduce to do that. And then when we talk about CBT, skill building is a really important component as well. Mastering skills, repetition over time. We're going to talk about the importance of repetition and the importance of reinforcing skills outside of session. So this concept of homework or assignments or activities or whatever kind of euphemism you want to put to, word, to the word homework, reinforcing again and again. Because at the end of the day, clients are going to do whatever they want to do. The choice is theirs. Um, we can't follow them 24-7 to watch them and make good choices for them. They have agency. They have autonomy. We want to guide them to make choices that are going to help improve their health, improve their functioning, but we also got to respect they're going to do what they're going to do. And so we want to help them to practice these skills, generalize these skills outside of sessions so that they're just, not just good therapy patients, but they can integrate them into their everyday experiences um, outside of your office. A, a core foundation of cognitive behavioral therapy more generally is this, this cognitive triad. What, what is this cognitive triad getting at? What does it mean? These three components, your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors, they're all interrelated. 
and they all influence each other. Uh, Dr. Miranda kind of touched on that a bit earlier. The way we think affects how we feel, and it affects the behaviors that we engage in. And that process is an interconnected one. If you can make any change to any parts of these, it can lead to changes in the others. If you change how you think, it can lead to changes in how you feel and the behavioral outcomes that those lead to. Uh, if you change your behaviors, you can help support changes in your feelings and in your thoughts. And so identifying these when we think about the mental health context, so what kind of negative thoughts do you have about yourself or how you feel about yourself? What kind of feelings are those associated with? And what kind of um, unhelpful behaviors does that often lead to? And we can think about changes there. This same process also overlaps with substance use as well. There are often thoughts about using that are connected to the feelings that people have, both positive feelings like excitement, happiness, joy, and also more negative feelings, stress, anxiety, fears, depression, and all of those are interrelated with the behaviors. And so if we can change how we think about using and do something about the thoughts that come up, that can influence our feelings and it can lead influence the behavioral outcomes, especially around using again. If we can behaviorally avoid situations that in the past always lead you to use again, it can lead to diminishing some of the thoughts around using and some of the feelings that get associated with it. So what we think about this cognitive triad often in the mental health context. There's direct parallels as we think about substance use, the thoughts that come up. Those thoughts that linger, they get stronger, they get more urgent, they lead to those cravings. They get more powerful, it leads to feelings and behaviors, and the behavioral outcomes are typically using again. And so, as we break down the substance use, the worksheets are going to help us do that. We want to explore what are you thinking, what are you feeling, and what are you doing, what are the behaviors. Because all of those are opportunities to identify those patterns that often lead to, to using again. Now, one thing that is really fundamental in, in CBT for substance use, there's a lot of parallels, there's a lot of common applications, but there is one key difference here. Um, Dr. Miranda touched on a variety of different cognitive skills that are helpful when we talk about CBT for depression or for anxiety. Uh, what are some of those cognitive strategies that you engage in in CBT for mental health? So identifying your thoughts, and challenging some of your thoughts, checking out the evidence. Mm -hmm. So identifying their core beliefs, these kind of deeply ingrained feelings and how that leads to some of the thoughts that come up. Absolutely, yeah. And then at the same time, often with CBT for mental health, we engage in these cognitive strategies and others in addition to some behavioral strategies. What are some behavioral strategies for depression, for example? You gotta get out and do stuff. Those activities that you used to enjoy that you don't do anymore because it's hard and it doesn't feel fun anymore, you gotta push yourself to start to do that. Reaching out to people that you care about that you maybe haven't talked to in a while, you haven't spent time with them, you gotta kinda push yourself to do that. And when we, when you, we use CBT for mental health, oftentimes those behavioral strategies are used right alongside the cognitive strategies. Um, the big difference with CBT for substance use is that we primarily rely on the behavioral strategies first, and then the cognitive piece comes a bit later. So we're gonna talk about what those behavioral strategies are, but thinking about avoiding high-risk situations, spending time in low-risk situations. And then as people kind of stabilize, 
the cognitive pieces become a bigger factor there as well. So we use similar strategies, the timing of it is very different. And there's a really concrete reason, why might we want to do that? For substitution, why do we want to start with the behavioral strategies first? Exactly, some of the, cogn the cognitive tasks of really breaking down those thoughts and feelings, identifying them, challenging them, connecting with them, that is incredibly hard in recovery for, with substance use in those early phases, absolutely. Some of those cognitive tasks can be incredibly challenging. And there's a, there's a reason for that, that I'm just gonna deviate just a bit slightly to talk about why that is and why it, this is such a core component for it. Starting with the behavioral strategies first is important because the brain in, in people who have struggle with a substance use disorder, it changes. It changes over time. Um, and these, these effects are structural, they're functional, and they tend to last. They don't last forever, we got some good news here. But it takes some time for the brain to, to regain some of that functionality again and to improve there. Um, we're not gonna go into a huge, huge spiel on this, but I wanted to highlight some of the core ways that substance use changes the brain. All drugs of abuse, affect certain parts of our brain that control really important functions. So when we talk about the reward pathway, we're talking about a really ancient part of the brain. It's very, very deep in the center here. Um, we're talking about the amygdala, the limbic system, the ventral tegmental area connects to the nucleus accumbens. This is a primal part of our brain that is activated when we engage in core life functions that keep us alive. It's the reward pathway, which then connects to some areas in the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe that are responsible for executive functioning. Um, we'll touch on that in just a second. But this core part of the brain the, in the reward pathway makes activities that keep us alive pleasurable. So what kinds of things in everyday life give us pleasure? Food, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, lunch is coming up. I don't know about you, I'm pretty excited. Um, <laughs> And it's not just like a, the most delicious piece of chocolate cake you've ever had or a delicious steak. All food gives you little boosts in dopamine. What else? Compassion. So like a hug from a loved one. You know, you see your kid at the end of a long day or your spouse or somebody you really care about. Social connectedness gives us pleasure. What's the other one? I heard it in the back. Sex. Sex. Well, maybe not every day, but on a good day. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you think about things like sex, social connectedness, food, these are basic life functions. These keep us alive. As, a, as an individual food, you can't survive if you don't eat. Also as an individual, if you don't have social connections, you get really sick. And it's really bad for us when we isolate. And we physically get very sick. And then as a species, as a collective, we need to have sex for the species to reproduce and to continue. So these are life or death parts of the brain that have evolved to keep us alive and keep us going. So these are primal and they are powerful. And this part of the brain acts very, very quickly when it's activated because it's evolved to keep us alive. It's core life or death function. All drugs of abuse affect these exact same parts. So that's why when people have a craving, it's not just like, oh yeah, maybe I'll get high today. We'll see how that goes. You know. It feels like I'm gonna die if I don't get this drug. Like, it feels like everything is gonna come to a halt because it's preying on the part of the brain that tells us to do things to keep us alive. Uh, dopamine's the name of the game in the reward pathway. It does all kinds of different functions in the brain. Um, 
But when we think about the reward pathway, dopamine is kind of that, that pleasure chemical. Um, all drugs of abuse boost dopamine to different degrees and to different extents, but they all have that uh, pharmacological profile in common here. There's different mechanisms, but there's some common threads. But the, the, the unfortunate thing is that most, all drugs of abuse either meet the reward the dopamine release of sex, which is one of the top most pleasurable things we do in everyday life. All drugs of abuse at, at least match that dopamine release, and most drugs blow sex out of the water in terms of the pleasure and the rewarding factors. Uh, sex boosts dopamine about 200% compared to baseline. Methamphetamine boosts it about 1,300% compared to baseline. Even nicotine, it's about 225%. Even in cigarette, more than sex in terms of the dopamine release. But the unfortunate thing is that our brains like stability, they like homeostasis. And so after repeatedly giving your brain these artificial boosts in dopamine, the brain tries to adapt. So it doesn't feel quite as good as it used to feel in the first time that you did it. And over time, it leads to less dopamine activity in certain regions here. So this is a PET scan. It's taking a look at dopamine activity. On the left-hand side is a healthy control brain. And this is kind of a top-down view looking over at the top. And um, this is the back of the brain back here. This is the front part of the brain here. And you can see lots of dopamine activity throughout. We like to see nice bright colors. Shows healthy dopamine activity. On the right-hand side, we have a chronic methamphetamine user. And as you can see, all throughout the brain, it's much darker, which means less dopamine activity. And it's especially dark right up here in this frontal part of the brain. Um, what does that prefrontal cortex do again? Executive functioning, what does that mean? Decision-making, impulse control, long-term planning. We'll, we'll circle back to that in just a second. There's one, a couple other things that I also wanted to highlight in these brain changes. This is an fMRI that's taking a look at dopamine activity, and the brighter colors indicate overactivity compared to the healthy control. So it's fired up in overdrive. And it's especially bright in these two little regions here called the amygdala, and it, which is in the limbic system. What does the amygdala do? Survival. Mm -hmm. A kind of emotion processing, but especially around a few key ones? Fear. Fear. Fight or flight, absolutely. So the part of your brain that gets activated in a fight or flight response, are you in danger, do you need to run for safety, or do you need to bunker down and get ready to fight something? And emotion regulation and reactivity there. And here, they're overactive compared to the control group. This is also the part of the brain that gets activated when we have a craving for a drug. Um, so if your fight or flight is fired up in overdrive, I like to think about this as the gas pedal. This is the go, go, go part of the car here. It's pedal to the metal. When you are exposed to a trigger, this lights up like a Christmas tree and it's fired up. And it acts very, very quickly. Um, also, if your fight or flight response is in overdrive, how does that impact treatment? Emotion processing is difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get set off really easily, and you can get upset. If you feel disrespected, if you feel like your counselor is talking down to you, or not hearing you, not listening to you, you say something shameful or judgmental to them, accidentally or not, they get pissed off. And they can get set off really easily, which is why compassionate, non-judgmental, respectful approaches are so important. 
Also, if your trigger sensor is easily set off and you get reminded of your drug use because you see somebody using on TV or you pass by an old neighborhood where you used to use, that is ready to go off on a trigger's notice. At the same time, here we're taking a look at dopamine activity. This is an fMRI slice of the brain down kind of this way. And the darker colors indicate underactivity compared to the healthy control, meaning it's less active. It doesn't work as well. And again, that prefrontal cortex is significantly underactive compared to the healthy control in the stimulant user. If your executive functioning isn't working so well, impulse control is not as good. Thinking ahead to the long-term consequences doesn't work so good. Uh, reminding yourself of the coping skills that your counselor told you you should be using instead of using drugs, that's not working so good. This is like the brakes in your car. It slows you down. When you get fired up, you're speeding too fast, and you're like, whoa, 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 there's a cop around. I need to slow down here. It calms things down. It slows you down. It helps you think ahead to the consequences. Oh, I've got a drug test coming up next week, and I don't want to go back to jail. Don't pick up the phone because your dealer's calling you. Um, you see somebody using in a movie or in a, in a song that you hear on the radio, don't give in to those old impulses. Slow down. That part of the brain isn't working quite so well. Meanwhile, the amygdala and the limbic system, it's fired up. So what do you think this has implications in terms of, also in terms of treatment? No wonder relapse is so common. Their brains have changed in a way to set them up for failure. It doesn't have to end in failure, but without structure, without support, without a lot of help, their brains have set them up for failure. So this whole just say no, willpower is not enough on its own. It takes willpower and support and structure and community and a lot of support and resources as well because their brains have changed in a way that predisposes them to relapse again. So substance users are not bad people who make bad choices it's not a moral failure, it's a brain disease. But as we're going to talk about, it's not just a brain disease. But since the brains have set them up for failure, structure is really important. Emotion processing is also more difficult as well. So our behavioral strategies are really important, which we're going to talk about. Also, what's interesting to note is that one of the, one of the reasons that CBT is so effective is that it also, CBT changes the brain. And there's a lot of evidence to show that um, people who engage in CBT, we see improvements in brain regions exactly where our substance users need it, and that prefrontal cortex reduce some of the activity there. Interestingly enough, people who are exposed to trauma, who have PTSD, we see very similar dysfunctions in the brain in terms of <coughs> bypassing of that prefrontal <coughs> cortex, that fight or flight is kind of stuck in overdrive, just as a, a side note. The other thing that we see related to these uh, brain changes is it leads to cognitive impairments which are important to keep in mind. There's three red flags I like to think about. Age of onset, the earlier you start using is a red flag for cognitive impairments. The overall quantity and the duration, so how long you've used over time. When you notice the younger that you are, the red flags should come up, there might be some cognitive impairments. Or just if they were using massive quantities of alcohol, for example, red flag for cognitive impairments. Or they've been using for years and years and years being mindful that they probably have some trouble with memory, with attention, or focus. There's a few general effects we see, so episodic memory, remembering certain periods of time, emotional processing across substances, and executive function, which we talked about. 
Um, there are a few specific effects we notice as well. Uh, alcohol and stimulants, impulse control, but that's also general. Uh, cognitive flexibility, so shifting topics easily and fluidly. Alcohol and MDMA or ecstasy, uh, processing speed, selective attention, you know, blocking out outside distractions. Now, there is evidence with cannabis in methamphetamine. Prospective memory is impacted. Prospective memory is essentially remembering that you need to do something in the future. And although this is cannabis and methamphetamine, I think that most people aren't great at that. Or maybe I'm just uh, disclosing a little bit here. Remembering that you need to do something in the future. So a couple examples I always think about, like you, you want to make chicken for dinner tonight. You, you leave for work, you totally forgot to take the chicken out of the freezer. You're like, oh crap, all right. So the minute you get home, I need to take the chicken out of the freezer, like put it into a bowl of water, put it into the microwave to defrost so you can make dinner. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, the second I get in the door, I've got to take that chicken out. All right? You go through your day, you drive home, take the bus home. The first thing you do is you turn on Netflix and you get totally distracted and you never take the chicken out and you get pissed at it later. <laughs> Or you get an email saying your boss needs you to go to a meeting, but you have a doctor's appointment. It's really, okay, I gotta call my doctor and I gotta reschedule because I can't make that appointment, all right? Something else happens, you get another email, you completely forget to reschedule your appointment and the doctor's calling you like, where are you at? You got a fee now because you didn't show up. That. Remembering that you need to do something in the future, which, full disclosure, I'm terrible at already. And so I try to think about, if it's hard for me to do that, Think about what it's like for your clients to remember things that need to happen. Their, their child care follows through and they forget to reschedule their appointments. Um, the bus didn't come and so they don't call and reschedule. Things like that are impaired. And then again, processing speed overall. So these directly impact your ability to deliver treatment. The other big component with that is when we take a look at memory and recall, there's differences in verbal memory compared to visual or picture memory. Even in the blue, which is the healthy control group, word recall, the average score is just slightly lower than the visual or picture recall, even in healthy people. All right? But when you compare it with a methamphetamine user, that verbal recall is dramatically impaired compared to the visual recall, which is also impaired, um, but even more uh, distinctly with the verbal recall. How do you communicate with clients like 99% of the time? You talk to them, yeah. And so remembering, remembering the strategies that you talk about in session, you know, what was I, what was my homework assignment this week? What was I supposed to do? You know, we talked about the go, going to an AA meeting, but what am I supposed to do there? Um, I was supposed to make a, an appointment with my primary care doctor, but why? I, you know, remembering those things when it's just a verbal recall is a lot harder, and people in general, but especially with substance users. Um, and so CBT is designed to work with a healing brain. It's designed to reinforce, repeat, and also break things down in a way to make it a little bit easier to understand while the brains are healing. Uh, uh, does the brain heal? Yes. Yeah. But don't they say like neurons, once a neuron dies, it's gone forever? Yeah, those connections can rebuild themselves. Yeah, they can reconnect. The brain has a remarkable way of bouncing back. Now, is it going to bounce back 100% the way that it was before? We can't guarantee that. We can't give that 100%. But we do know there's a lot of evidence that there can be significant and dramatic improvements in functioning. Um, just to highlight some of this so far, 
Here we're taking a look at dopamine activity. Uh, here's our healthy control. We like nice bright colors. Shows active dopamine. Here's a, a, a person with a methamphetamine use disorder, disorder who's been um, abstinent for one month. And here you can see it's much darker, not quite as bright, not as many oranges and reds compared to the healthy control. But here we've got a methamphetamine a person with a methamphetamine use disorder who has not used in 24 months, so two years. And it's looking pretty good. It's looking a lot closer towards the healthy control group. So there's great news there. There's great news. The brain can improve. The not so good news, however, is, wow, that's 24 months. That's not overnight at all. That's a, that's a, a long time. Now, you can't definitively put a number that, to tell your client that for you specifically, this is how long it's going to take. Again, it goes back to the type of drug, it goes back to the age, it goes back to the duration and the quantity. For some people, it might be much less than 24. Some people, it might be longer. Um, but the amount of time that you need to be engaged in your recovery, engaged in structure, scheduling your time, going to sessions, seeing your counselor, is not like 30, 60, 90 days. You graduate, get a certificate, and you're home free. But you know, we think about that the same way we think about schizophrenia. It's a long-term prospect. We think about type 2 diabetes as well. You don't do 30 days of diabetes treatment, and you're cured, and you're done. It's an ongoing process. Substance use is very similar. Now, there are differences. There are variables there. Some people who use methamphetamine develop a psychosis that wasn't uh, pre-existing. For some people, those voices go away very quickly. Some people, those voices take a few months to go away. Some people, those voices can linger for a protracted amount of time. You know, there is variability in the improvements, but we can say um, um, with good confidence that there will be significant improvements in function. Awesome. So again, why is CBT so useful? It helps work with a brain that's different. It doesn't work the same as it used to, and, it, and, it, and its strategies are designed to try to mitigate some of that. Uh, along those ways, CBT is also collaborative. Uh, CBT is a very active form of counseling where the clients are, this is their recovery. This is their process. You can't do the work for them. And so we need to make sure their goals are reflected in, in your sessions. If you're bringing in a worksheet for a topic for today, how do I connect it to you specifically, what your life is like? and what your experiences are and how it might help you. You know, if we're gonna talk about coping skills for cravings, maybe we can also connect that to arguments that you have with your family, because that's a big factor that's also affecting you. Making sure that we're focused on the client's goals and connecting the general information and the skills and the knowledge that you teach them to make it tailored to that specific individual. And it's structured as well. Clients in early recovery need structure to support them while their brains are healing when they can be easily set off and triggered, and the breaks that would slow them down and remind them of their coping skills and remind them of the long-term consequences are working as well, it takes structure to help support them in that process. Right. And again, this is more general. You can use it at all kinds of settings, an individual. There's a lot of great group activities and group processes that you can engage in as well. And it's really helpful in combination with other modalities. Um, bringing in motivational interviewing is an invaluable skill in using CBT. When I do trainings in the community, my, uh, probably the top question is, how do I do CBT with a client who doesn't admit they have a drug problem? And I'm like, well, 
You can't. <laughs> you got to take a step back. We have to try to engage them and try to help raise that awareness. And motivational interviewing is a really valuable tool to help use alongside CBT because CBT is very active. There's a lot of work for them to do. Motivation fluctuates. It goes up. It goes down. We got to try to work with that and flow with that. And motivational interviewing is really useful alongside that. And in conjunction with um, medicines, whether it's medicines for their mental health or medicines for for their alcohol or opioid or tobacco use disorders as well. Along these lines, dealing with a healing brain, repetition is so important. Repetition of information and skills over time across sessions, repetition outside of session with homework assignments help to reinforce and learn new ways of coping and new ways of dealing with difficult situations. New ways of responding when you are triggered. When you're thinking about using again, you have to relearn how to live your life. You gotta relearn how to engage in activities that you used to do while you were also using it. Um, so approaching old situations in new ways takes time and it takes repetition here. In practice, as I mentioned earlier. Right? When you're doing practicing, you're reinforcing, it's also really important for the clients to know the rationale. I think explaining to the clients some of this brain science stuff is really useful. To understand the purpose of being engaged in the process, why are you doing a homework assignment? It's not because you're trying to give them work to do and try to make their lives even more um, overwhelming than they might be already, but there's a good reason for it. We want to try to help you remember what you learn. And also take what we talk about in session and actually apply it in your life to make that useful for you. Um, and, the, and, and stressing that importance is, is key. So, so the question is, how do you diversify how you convey information beyond just verbally as well? So, you know, if you're talking about mood, having a mood chart that shows kind of uh, different faces that might reflect it, or drawing pictures. You know, worksheets are, it is verbal, but then being able to read it and write it down is helpful. Have the client read the worksheet, and then you repeat it. You reinforce the key takeaway points, giving them copies of it that they can take back with them. Um, uh, uh, Visually demonstrating the skill for the client. You know, I'll teach you some mindfulness meditation. I'll tell you how to do it. I'm going to do it myself so you can see it, and then I want you to practice it. So it's kind of visually seeing it, experiencing it, repeating it on their own, kind of talking about it. So it trying to convey it in different ways. You know, if you're talking about drug refusal skills, I might show that first, um, explain it have them do it, and then have them practice it in a role play, things like that. But mm -hmm. drawing pictures uh, as well can be helpful there. But just thinking about how to diversify that. Yeah, visual recall is better. So if we talk about a plan for how you're going to go to an AA meeting, let's write down the plan. Right? If they have a phone, do they know how to use the calendar app in their phone? Do they know how to use reminders in there? Um, uh, if we talk about um, they're going to go to their primary care doctor, Let's write down the date of the appointment, the bus route they need to take to get there, the questions that they wanted to ask the doctor, write all of those things down so that way they can bring it with them. And then let's take a picture of all of those instructions with your phone so when you lose the paper, you still have it there. It, 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 it takes some kind of create flexibility and creativity, but trying to, trying to um, document it, write things down is really helpful. The worksheets are, are useful in that regard too. And visually, we're gonna talk about breaking down when you use Writing down what were you thinking, what were you feeling, what were you doing, that helps make things easier. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned that uh, substance use is disorders, they're a brain disease, but they're not just a brain disease. 
There's also learning processes that contribute along the way, which are also really important in understanding targets of treatment and interventions here. So these learning processes that are, we're going to just very briefly highlight is, uh, these are basic behavioral learning processes. So classical conditioning, I'm sure you've heard of, the, um, heard of Pavlov before and his experiments with his dogs. Um, just as a very, very brief refresher, Pavlov noticed that when his, he was studying their gastrointestinal systems, and he noticed that when the lab assistants would come in to feed them, they'd get really excited. You know, if you have a dog at home, and you, you, the dog hears like the bag of food shake, or if you have a cat, and the cat hears the can open, they get really pumped up and excited because they remember those things. So he devised an experiment where his assistants would come in, they'd ring a bell, feed the dogs. Ring a bell, feed the dogs, ring a bell, feed the dogs, repeat, repeat. And then one time, they rang a bell with no feeding whatsoever, and what did the dogs do? Yeah, they salivated, their gastric juice started to flow, in the absence of any food present whatsoever. And what's really important was that it was a physiological reaction. We don't consciously control our saliva and our gastric juices. Our brains do it on its own. We don't control that. So it wasn't like the dogs were cognitive, cognitively thinking, ooh, I'm going to get fed. Let's get pumped up here. You know, It was a physiological response with no food present whatsoever. Absolutely. What do you think the parallel is with substance use? Yeah, when people obsess about using, they get a physiological response. Yeah, Triggers, exactly. Those people, places, things, times of day, uh, emotions that have been over time, paired with substance use. So then if you're exposed to that trigger, like it's payday, you just got cash, you have a physiological response. <laughs> and it's not just like a casual, easy, like, oh, maybe I'll get high now. <laughs> it feels like your body responds as if the drug is there. What is so incredible about that is they've done um, fMRI scans where if they put a, a, cocaine, a person who uses cocaine in an fMRI, they administer the drug, they watch the brain light up uh, in certain regions in that reward pathway, and then they put a different cocaine user, and all they do is show them a picture of cocaine or rolled up dollar bill or some sort of reminder of the drug, their brain lights up as if they had just used. It's remarkable. The response is incredibly powerful in the absence of any drug present whatsoever. Absolutely. So this kind of repetition over time is classical conditioning. So we gotta figure out what are those condition cues? What are those people, places, or things that often associate with drug use? And then how do we avoid those that we can? and plan ahead for those that are unavoidable. And so what's really important here with classical conditioning is this concept of that response happens at an unconscious level. You can't control the physiological response. You can control your behaviors and the choices that you make in that particular moment, but the physiological response there is, is unconscious. So if you choose not to avoid your triggers, you're choosing to relapse. That's the message. If you don't think ahead and avoid your triggers, you're making a choice to relapse at the end of the day. Because if you get exposed to them, you're going to have a craving. That doesn't mean that you're going to use, but the odds are stacked against you. So you're making a choice there. And so it takes time to be able to extinguish those condition cues for the bell to extinguish that physiological response. And in the meantime, you got to take active measures to avoid the triggers you can't avoid, 
and plan ahead for the ones that aren't avoid avoidable. Because you can't avoid everything in life. And some triggers like times a day. You can't avoid payday. <laughs> but how can we plan for it? How can we make it less likely for the behavioral response to be using again? So understanding triggers is really important here. So learning strategies to avoid those. We touched on all of this here. All right. That's classical conditioning. That's important. Because people use drugs at first to cope. Um, well, don't want to jump ahead too much here. But that repetition and those conditioning cues play a role here. The other learning process that I want to talk about is called it's operant conditioning, the work of Skinner here. But the first one is positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement in Skinner's classic experiments, um, mice were in a cage. There's a little button in the cage. And the mice discovered if they press the button, they'll get a reward. They'll get fed. And the mice learned very, very quickly, I'm going to push this button because I like food, and food's good. And so it increased a particular behavioral response. Um, positive reinforcement, if you've ever done a really great job at work and your boss has acknowledged it and said, man, you did an awesome job. I know you were kind of worried about that particular client, and they're doing so great. Keep up the good work. That's positive reinforcement. It's trying to increase a particular behavior. If you're training an, a, a dog, dogs have behavioral responses just like humans do. And the dog does a, a certain, they roll over, you give them a treat. You're teaching them that. With kids as well, you get a good grade in your class. Your teacher gives you a gold star and good job on there. They're trying to increase a particular behavior. And that's really effective. How, what is the parallel learning process with substance use? There are ways of using positive reinforcement in, 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 in recovery. So getting a chip or contingency management is all based off of positive reinforcement. Yeah. But how might that play a role in the developing of the addiction? Drugs feel good. <laughs> they give you a rush. They give you a euphoria. Or you get something from it. It gives you energy. It helps you go to sleep. Um, it gives you something functional. Or it just feels good and it's fun. And if something feels good, you're going to want to do it again. If you're living on the streets and, and some meth gives you energy to stay up all night so your stuff doesn't get stolen and you stay safe, I'm going to keep doing that to keep myself safe. Or if taking a, a couple extra Xanax helps you fall asleep really quickly, you learn, and you can't sleep and you have a really hard time sleeping, you will very quickly continue to re repeat that behavior because you're getting something functional from it. People don't use drugs because they're bad people who want to ruin their lives. They use it for a reason. And so it's important to figure out what are some of those reasons. Some of it might be positive reinforcement, which doesn't mean good. It just means you're adding something to increase the behavior. So it could be to get energy, to help you sleep, uh, for social connections as well. Because um, it's fun to drink when you're with the people at a party. You know, you're getting something from it. we got to figure out, for that client, what are they getting out of it? There's also negative reinforcement. So negative reinforcement doesn't refer to something bad, but it's taking something away. And withdrawal is one really good example of that. If you're an opioid withdrawal, you're shaking, you're nauseated, you're vomiting. If there's a whole stuff that's coming out of it, it's awful, it's really unpleasant, you feel like you're going to die, how do you feel better? You use. Right away, those withdrawal symptoms go away, and you just kind of feel normal again. Not even getting the fun that you used to get. It's just trying to stabilize. What else might substance use take away that people want? Emotions. Emotions, yeah. Painful memories. 
traumatic memories, uh, stress, anxiety, pain, both emotional and physical pain. Um, drugs are really good at numbing some of that stuff out, at least in the beginning. Typically, it makes all of that much worse in the long run, but in the very short term, it works. It takes away pain. It takes away suffering. If, if using opioids, you discover it also takes away the emotional pain in addition to the physical pain, that is very highly reinforcing to keep using it again and again and again. So these are processes that contribute to the, the continuation of these behaviors because they work. So we got to figure out what are they using for? Um, what is it taking away that's unpleasant for them? How do we try to find alternate ways to deal with stress, to deal with pain, to deal with negative emotions, to deal with, uh, with withdrawal as well? Um, it's just like um, if, if your smoke detector in your house, the battery goes dead, what happens? It starts beeping. And beeping, and it's loud, and it's shrill, and it's annoying. How do you get the beeping to stop? you got to change the battery. That's negative reinforcement. Um, if you start driving your car without buckling your seatbelt, it starts beeping at you. It's annoying. It light flashes. The way to get that to go away is to buckle up. That's all additional examples of negative reinforcement. These are also really powerful. But, you know, the beeping of the smoke detector is nothing in comparison to the pain of trauma or the pain of suffering, uh, the pain of abuse and neglect. And so these are very powerful forces if a substance can temporarily take those away. So it's important for clients to understand and to explore what are those functional reasons that they're getting from it. Because without something else to take the place of that, they're going to relapse. We see this in trauma-focused work all the time. Substance use is a very common means of trying to self-medicate, of trying to cope. If you try to work on the trauma, if you try to take away the substance first, without working on the trauma piece, they're going to fail. You're going to do harm. They're, th they're going to get worse. They're going to have a relapse in their trauma symptoms and in their substance use. Because if you're taking away the Band-Aid, there needs to be something else to help them through that in the moment. Um, and also, as we talk about finding alternative coping strategies, another thing is also really important is to be realistic with expectations as well. That's really important. Like if they use to deal with stress, to deal with pain at home, to deal with difficult relationships at home, that's why they drink. We can talk about mindfulness meditation, we can talk about we can talk about cognitive restructuring, we can talk about going for a walk and exercise and all of that. That's not going to pack the same amount of punch as a handful of Vicodin is going to. It's not going to be the same degree of the effect. However, if you are meditating, you are using your coping skills, you're calling a friend when you need support, how is that going to help you to accomplish your goals of getting your daughter back because she got taken away? Or to maintain the housing that you work so hard to get, whereas the handful of Vicodin is going to impact your ability and your recovery goals. So it's important to um, keep realistic with those expectations. Okay. Um, we're going to take a, a quick break. How long is the break? Okay, we're going to do a quick five-minute break. Awesome. Thank you. So we talked about um, substance use disorders, their brain disease, but not just a brain disease. Uh, we talked about a few learning processes that contribute to that. Uh, these are really important concepts in our thinking about substance use disorders from the CBT lens. Um, we talked about classical conditioning triggers. We talked about 
positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. And then the, the other learning process that's also really important to talk about is social learning and how we learn how to do things from the people around us. What are some ways social learning influences the development of a substance use disorder? So normalizing it within a family. So like if you see your parents drink and they drink every night, or your parents smoke weed and, you, and they do it all the time, that might seem like normal behavior to you. So the influence of other people, other people that you socialize with might also be under the influence and it's easier for you to do that too. When you see substance use in your neighborhoods, in your communities, it normalizes it. What else? Yeah, the belonging with the group of people who might be engaging in it. It's a way to kind of fit in and to feel that connection if you don't get that at home, absolutely. And how you learn how to cope with things. If you see when, you're, when your mom comes home and she's had a bad day and she's really stressed out and you see how she copes with that, whether it's drinking, marijuana, whatever it might be, you learn how to cope in the same ways. We learn these what normal behaviors are from the people around us, from our neighborhoods, from our families, from our environments here. All of those contribute to that. Um, you know, how do you know how much, how much do most people drink? How do you learn that? You learn it from your family, from the people around you, your group of friends. You know, when I go and I teach the NIAAA's lowest drinking guidelines, you know, for men it's no more than four on any given day and 14 overall per week. If I'm at a college campus and I'm talking to undergrads, some of them are going to laugh at those numbers. Whereas uh, here, you guys might think that that is really, really high. Or some people might think that that is still really low. It all depends on what you know from the people around you and what you think of as normal behavior. And so it's important for clients to also understand how they learn what normal ways of coping it comes from and what alternative ways do exist. And there are other ways of dealing with stress to cope with it. Not everybody drinks. Not everybody smokes weed. And there's different ways of behavior and there's different choices that they can make. So again, um, CBT really emphasizes behavioral strategies earlier on. So planning a schedule of low-risk activities is a really key behavioral strategy. Um, recognizing those high-risk situations where people are likely to be exposed to their triggers, those people, places, things that remind them to use, and then plan ahead for ways of coping with, with behaviors that might come up with it. Because again, we're trying to minimize the opportunities for the limbic system and the amygdala to fire up and minimize the amount of breaking that the prefrontal cortex has to do, the amount of slowing down that needs to happen. Uh, and the, these, the structure is important for that, and then planning your time is really important there as well. The cognitive piece comes a little bit later, and this also depends on an individual and their function. Depending on their cognitive functioning in general, this might come earlier than than it might be for other individuals. Also, cognitive effects from serious mental illness is layered on top of this as well, some of the cognitive pieces. More higher functioning clients that are cognitively flexible, they can engage in these conversations, go for it, by all means. But it's important to keep in mind, many clients with substance use, you need to be aware that some of that attention, some of that process, motion processing, some of that verbal recall, it might be impacted.
So what we're going to touch on here is just a little overview of this role of a CBT clinician. This is very, very similar for CBT for mental health, this portion in, in particular, so it might be a refresher for some here. Um, but what makes a good empathic clinician? What, what do they do? An empathetic, client-centered counselor. They're good, active listeners. Mm -hmm. They show that active curiosity to try to understand what things are like from the client's perspective. What are their values? What are their goals? What are their beliefs? Um, what does a good teacher do? There's concrete information and there's concrete skills that they are trying to convey to help the other person learn. Mm -hmm. And what might a good teacher do that an empathetic clinician might not do? A teacher needs to be a lot more structured, that's definitely for sure. There's, we've got lessons that we need to get to, we got a plan that we need to march forwards on, you gotta take this knowledge and you gotta get it. Uh, you know, there's flexibility, you might be a little bit slower than others, and others are faster, but there's still concrete things that need to happen. But what else might a good teacher do that an empathetic clinician might not? A good teacher could be very persuasive. Mm -hmm. Praise, yeah. What, uh, what's like really fundamental that you get in school? You get graded. If you do things wrong, a good teacher is going to be very direct. This is the wrong answer. <laughs> Fix it. <laughs> um, and a good CBT clinician is kind of a balancing act between those. In, in purely client-centered approaches, there's less right and wrong. A good teacher, if you get the math problem wrong, it's wrong. They're going to try to help you to do it the right way, show you the right response there, but there's a lot more corrective feedback in that particular moment. And so a good CBT clinician is a kind of a balance between these two sides. There's the empathy, there's the curiosity, there's client-centeredness, but there's also a plan. we got to get to these modules because these are important skills that you need to learn. There's very concrete psychoeducation topics that you need to convey and the client needs to retain. And then there's also corrective feedback. It, you know, if you're if you're teaching, you know, drug refusal skills, and the client is being very, very wishy-washy and not very assertive, you want to help correct that and help show them the right way to do it in that moment. So, CBT is a there's all there's many different types of balancing acts, and this is one of the big ones that can be tough. If you are purely client-centered, you can lose track of your lesson plan. You can lose track of the skills that you want to teach. But if you are too rigid and robotic-like, and you're sticking way too much to the worksheets and not listening to the client and what's coming up, you lose the relationship. So it, it's, a, it's a balancing act um, between those two. Um, a CBT clinician is like the guide to the recovery. It's also using positive reinforcement to acknowledge successes and acknowledge efforts along the way here. So we talked about all that. So there's this balance between being a good listener, actively hearing them, and teaching new information and skills. A great CBT clinician takes whatever's going on with the client in that moment, what, what they want to talk about, and connects it to the lesson for today. So if I had planned to talk about coping skills related to triggers, well, and the client's getting into huge arguments with their parents, let me see if I can connect those. Like how, when you do get into a fight with your parents, and you're getting activated, and you're getting angry and upset, how might I connect these coping skills, and how can you apply it there? Um, that's really the kind of the magic of doing CBT. Right? Uh, there's a, a good teacher 
also assigns homework because you've got to reinforce the skill or reinforce the knowledge, and a good teacher holds you accountable. If you don't do the homework in school, a good teacher doesn't let just say, okay, no big deal, don't worry about it. A good teacher is going to be like, okay, the homework is an important part of the lesson plan, and there's going to be uh, things that you need to do here, so redo it, or try it again next time. You, maybe you turn it in a little bit late, but it's important that you turn this in. And then reinforcing um, small steps. In this balancing act, one thing that can be challenging is if you let every session turn into the crisis of the day and just hearing what's going on and why the client is upset or what's been frustrating for them, and if you don't get to the new lesson plan, um, that's not doing CBT. And this is hard to do sometimes, especially if there's things that are pressing on the client's mind. Um, whenever possible, if you can connect the crisis of the day to the lesson, that's ideal. Sometimes that's easier to do than others. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, I was going to do the functional analysis today, but it sounds like you got really triggered last week, so let's pull out the triggers worksheet instead. If you're still sticking to the material, even if it's a different plan, you're still moving forward, and, and, and that's a great way to try to balance that. And sometimes you have to be a little bit more directive. Like, so it sounds like these arguments with your parents are really, really affecting you. You know, I want to make sure that you get a chance to talk about that, but we also have this lesson for today that I also really want to get to. Is it okay if we leave a little bit at the end of the session to come back to the parents thing? Um, sometimes that can help to shift and move into what you need to talk about. But this is not always easy to do. That's where the nuances and really doing a good job of this. Uh, a good CBT clinician is that source of positive reinforcement, acknowledging efforts that they make along the way, um, but being non-judgmental and supportive. Uh, motivational interviewing, I touched on it already, it's incredibly valuable in administering CBT because it gives you a balance of client-centeredness, but MI is also goal-oriented. MI is also gently persuasive in trying to help nudge people towards their accomplishing their goals. So it's, it's really valuable to use alongside here. So I've talked a little bit about that balancing act. Uh, I want to give you a chance to take a look at one of these, one of the worksheets that we're going to talk about here. So this one is called the functional analysis. It's very similar to a thought record if you've used one of those before. And what it does is it gives you a really structured way to start to identify patterns. Identify patterns in their substance use. Because people don't use for no there's usually predictable patterns in their behaviors. And so it helps us to start to explore those thoughts, those feelings, or the situations that often precede substance use. It helps us to identify those high-risk situations here. Um, this is really important for clients that have less insight, who aren't really aware of why they use. Some clients who've been in treatment many, many times, They've been around the block. They've been with many providers before. Some of them have a lot of knowledge already about their substance use. Other clients are much less familiar. Um, they haven't been in treatment before. They haven't clicked before. Um, and they're not aware of those internal patterns here. And so the functional analysis gives us a structured way to do that. Because before you actively start to think about and to pay attention to what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and what you're doing, it's not something that people just automatically do all of our lives. It, it's not until you take the time to think about that that you start to pay attention to it in more, in more detail. So it, it's helpful in the early parts of the treatment when they're first starting to identify those high-risk situations. But you can use the exact same process 
later on in terms of relapse prevention to identify those high-risk antecedent situations that precede relapse. Because just like substance use doesn't happen for no reason, relapse also doesn't happen for no reason. There's usually um, preceding antecedent situations. So the, the functional analysis, it kind of breaks down to the five W's as we call it. The what, the where, the who were they with, what was happening, what were they feeling, and this is how it looks. So you've got a copy of this and the worksheets that you have here. At the end of the training, I want to highlight exactly where these worksheets come from and where you can get it. It comes from SAMHSA's Counselor's Treatment Manual, which was based, uh, built from the Matrix Intensive Outpatient Manual, really, um, which I'll touch on it where you can get that at the very end for free. Um, but here's one of the, those core worksheets. So it's useful to use it in the, in the beginning to break down a particular situation with the client. So tell me about the last time that you used. Um, we're going to go through a worksheet here today to try to help identify some of the patterns here because there are often preceding events or situations that lead to substance use, and one of the goals in recovery is to identify those patterns. So the last time that you drank, for example, um, what came beforehand? What was the antecedent situation? Where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing? And when did you first become aware of wanting to use? That last one is sometimes especially hard for them to think about in those early processes, but it's, it's important to ask the question. And then this is a guided interview. So rephrase the questions however, in whatever ways it makes sense for your clients, whatever works for you. But these are the fundamental points that you want to take down. And when you're going through this, you can also kind of diversify how you deliver it. So maybe the first few sessions, you take the notes for the client. And then over time, they start to take notes on their own. So they're filling it out. You can give them this as a homework assignment that they do totally independently once they're more familiar with it. But in the early phases, you, they need a lot of your support to go through it. So what was happening beforehand? What were you thinking? And again, in the very beginning, these are hard questions. And sometimes it takes them a while to identify the thoughts. Sometimes they just can't even remember it at all. That happens a lot, but the goal is to, to get them to practice. What feelings and sensations? So how are you feeling? What kinds of emotions came up? Sometimes you need to give them examples, because again, that motion processing is not so great. And then the other one that's also important is, what signals did you get from your body? Because people experience cravings differently. Sometimes it's more cognitively, sometimes it's more physiologically. So they can kind of feel like a tightness in their chest, or their stomach gets tight, or they can just kind of smell it. And then what was the behavior? So what did you end up doing? What were you using? Um, how much did you use? Get a general estimate of the quantity. What paraphernalia did you use? Because that's important to acknowledge. If they were drinking, what did you drink? Was it a beer? Was it a glass of wine? Was it a mixed drink? Was it in a can? Was it in a glass? If they were smoking marijuana, was it an edible or a pipe or what kind of pipe? You know, we want to try to get an idea for the paraphernalia. And then what did other people around you do? So here you can already see that cognitive triad is coming up. What were your thoughts? What were your feelings? What were you doing? And then break down what happened afterwards. So how did you feel right afterwards? What emotions came up? 
And, you know, after the initial euphoria, how did you feel? <laughs> that also helps to follow up that. Um, how did other people react to the behavior? You know, what were they doing? Uh, were they were they using with you? Were you hiding from them? Like, what would that look like? And then what sorts of consequences, either positive or negative? Did it initially calm you down, but then later on you felt guilty? Um, did it cause any problems for you? Were you late to school or late to picking up your kids? Or um, did you have fun in the moment, but then later on you felt bad about it? Like, what, both positive and negative, what came after? And so this gives you a structured way to kind of break down their substance use and the patterns here. And it's helpful to repeat this um, over time as well. What, what is your reaction to this particular worksheet and thinking about it with your clients? Yeah, one thing that it is helpful is to kind of acknowledge that in talking about this, sometimes it can bring up some of those thoughts or feelings about it. So it's helpful to talk about kind of coping strategies earlier. We're going to touch on some of the coping with craving skills already, but kind of pre-orienting them to the worksheet is really important there, absolutely. Yeah, especially with cognitive impairments at first, this is hard. <laughs> this is really hard. And that's going to happen. There's going to be questions on there that no matter how you try to rephrase it or revisit it, they're going to be like, I don't know what I was thinking. And then the conversation there is, it's okay if you couldn't remember it that in that particular moment. You know, one of the goals here is to, to, to realize that there are patterns here. So the next time that you use, take a second to think about what thoughts were coming up, what feelings were coming up, or what were you doing there. Because the more that we can try to be in tune with these thoughts and these feelings and these behaviors, the easier it is to remember them. Because absolutely, at first, this is really tough for them to do. You can even kind of use it as a, give them a copy of the worksheet that they can bring with them, and you can use it as a homework assignment. Over time, it gets easier and easier. But yeah, at first, this would be really tough. So, this also helps to make those patterns really concrete as well, because it takes it out of their head and it puts it down on paper. They can also start to see cause and effect. This what happened before, these were the consequences that came up afterwards. So it gives you, when you do a few of these with a few different situations, you can help them to start to see even broader patterns. When you're around these people, you often use again. When you're in this part, this part of town, it often brings back those feelings. When these emotions come up, it often leads to these kinds of outcomes here. All of that helps to identify over time opportunities to change the behavioral outcomes. So um, one of the goals in going through the functional analysis is to start to identify what those triggers are, which we talked about earlier here. Triggers are those people, places, or things that are often associated with, with substance use. That's what we touched on. Right. Um, I want everybody to just relax in your chair. Just take a deep breath in. Let it out. Just relax for a second. And I want everybody out loud to spell out the word hop. Joey, spell hop. Spell mop. Spell mop. Now spell top. Spell top. What do you do at a green light? No, you go. You go at a green light. I don't want to be behind you after the 
I got another one. I got another one. So, out loud, say out the word roast. Say roast. Say roast. Say roast. What do you put in a toaster? Bread. No, you put bread. And then the toaster turns bread into toast. I just got one more. I just got one more. Alright. What color is this paper? What color is this paper? What color is this paper? What color? What do cows drink? No. No, they drink water. Cows drink water and they make milk. A baby cow and a cow. So alright. There is a trick there, but what was I doing? I was priming you to answer a certain way, all right? So the first time around, spell mop, spell hop, spell top, I was priming you to say you stop at that green light, all right? I get that. So the first time around, all right, there's a trick there, something's off. So you knew something was up. And then I came at you again with, say, roast, say, roast, say, roast, say, roast. I was priming you to say you put toast in a toaster instead of bread. Even though you got tricked the first time around, you're probably like, something's fishy, right? <laughs> now, many of you got tricked twice. And when I came out with the third time, you clearly knew this is not straightforward. <laughs> There's a trick here. But even then, many of you still said that cows drink milk, because I was priming you with the white color. So even though when you consciously are aware of, all right, look out, he's trying to trick you, that primacy effect, that immediacy of the reaction to it, the answer, comes so quickly even when you're on the lookout for it. So th this quick, reflexive thinking that comes up like that is not a perfect parallel to cravings, but there are similar processes. Even when you know, if I go around, my mom, we're going to get into a huge fight and I'm going to drink because that is how it happens every single time you see her. Even when you know going into it, I'm going to be triggered, I need to calm down. I'm going to be triggered, I need to look out. I'm going to be triggered, I need to have my sponsor on speed dial ready to go. Even when you go into that situation, those quick reflexive thoughts that come up about using are, can be very, very overwhelming and very powerful. And so it's really important to try to avoid those as much as possible because even when you know and you expect them, they can prime you to behave a certain way. So external triggers can be literally anything. This is by all means not an exhaustive list, but they kind of break down in things on the outside and then things on the inside. So people, people that you used to use with, uh, uh, friends and family members that you use with, drug dealers, um, or people that led you to want to use because being around them was awful. <laughs> um, locations, again, this could be literally unlimited. Certain parts of town, certain um, streets where your dealer used to live, or streets where you used to go to your friend's house to go use, um, it, different things. So seeing paraphernalia is really common. Money is another really big trigger as well, getting that paycheck, seeing it on TV or in music, and then time periods. So, you know, right after work is when you used to go straight to the bar, or um, times of day is another big one. Holidays, so many celebrations involve drinking or smoking pot or whatnot. Um, boredom is another really, really common trigger for folks. Um, and it's important to start to understand and explore for that person what are their triggers. And then internal ones. 
emotional states or physiological states. So hunger is a big one, um, anxiety, fear, sadness, but also positive, quote unquote positive ones like happiness or joy, celebration. Sexual arousal is another big one for people that use during sex. Um, all of those, these internal states can lead to triggers. And so here's the process that happens. There's exposure to the trigger, whether it's internal or external. You start thinking about using again, like, ugh, this is not a good idea. I probably shouldn't be around this. But how am I going to get it? What's going to happen? I have a drug test coming up next week. It's probably not a good idea, if you're thinking that far ahead. And then the thoughts escalate. If you let the thoughts can linger, they get stronger and they get more urgent. The thoughts lead to the cravings. The cravings are those intense need to, I got to, I have to. It's the life or death. It's kind of like um, Dr. Miranda mentioned, which getting hangry. If you haven't eaten for a long time and you feel like you are going to pass out and just die, but you're really not going to, but you feel like it in that moment, it's just like that, but like a thousand times stronger. It feels like a life or death urgency. And then there's a behavioral outcome of using. So this is the process. Trigger, thought, craving, use. There's parallels with mental health as well. So, um, you know, you get, your, your partner says something kind of judgy to you. And you're like, wow, that was kind of rude. That might lead to some unhelpful or maladaptive thoughts like, do, do they not like me anymore? Like, am I not good enough? That can lead to the negative emotional reactions, fear, anxiety, hopelessness, depression, and then some problematic coping mechanism that just makes it worse. So you stop talking to them. You avoid them, and hopefully they'll come back and talk to you. you know? Or you do other things to manage the emotion that's unhealthy for you. You eat too much, or whatever it might be. There's similar parallel processes when we think about triggers for substance use and for mental health. And the goal here is to identify the triggers because if you can avoid the trigger, you can avoid the rest. That's not always possible. But if you can identify the thoughts, you can do something to keep it going into the craving. Sometimes that's not possible. But if you can identify the craving itself, there's it's harder, but there's still opportunities to prevent that from leading to using again and relapsing. But it's important to try to start to identify those patterns. And again, at first, this is not an easy process. So the behavioral strategy is, Schedule your time to avoid those triggers. <laughs> because doing the cognitive work is, a, is harder in the beginning phases of treatment with the cognitive impairments. So our basic strategy, spend as much time in low-risk situations, low-risk activities that are never or almost never associated with substance use. And avoid as much as possible those high-risk situations or try to come up with a plan to try to mitigate the risk there. And then the next one is a chart for external triggers. And it's a really useful way to explore this. This is a matrix manual. You might have seen it. Um, you go through a variety of different ideas of locations or people or situations. You check off those that you always or almost always use. And you put a zero in those where you never or almost never use. So we got things like you know before work or at the park or with family members, at the beach or at concerts. And again, this just gives you a broader structure. You can change these. You can add your own to these based off of your neighborhood and your community, uh, your clients. Some open questions to identify others. But it's getting them to start to think. And again, it's helpful to revisit this because triggers change over time. And then the flip side is you take the checks, you take the zeros, 
And we're going to put, uh, we got our little safety thermometer here. Situations are, that are totally safe, situations that are low risk, but some caution needed. Situations that are high risk, you want to try to avoid as, as much as you can. And then very, very high risk, you are at very high risk of relapsing if you're in these. And you basically take your checks and your zeros and you apply them to the thermometer here. So it helps you to start to identify those situations that often lead to wanting to use it. It gives you ideas for activities that are relatively low risk, or it highlights high-risk activities that are unavoidable, because not all of them you can't avoid, so you need to have a plan in place here. But it gives you a structured way to explore the, the, the triggers here. It also takes it out of their head, and it makes it concrete, and you can see it. The visual of the thermometer, that metaphor of, of safety, helps to reinforce some of the concepts here. And especially with some of their number one triggers, have them draw a little picture or a little diagram of how that works. I would have them write out that trigger, thought, craving, use cycle so they remember it again and again. Um, yeah. I'm not going to walk through the internal triggers chart, but it comes next. Very, very similar process, but different emotions. You'll see there's also some repetition because it gets at some similar ideas, but in a different way. Different feelings. Um, uh, different physiological states as well. And you, well. you can go through the same exact process. Low risk emotions that are safe, higher risk emotions where you can't always avoid the emotion, but if it comes up, it's a reminder that you need to, to, um, to incorporate your coping skills here. Right? And so we talked about all of that already. Uh, but just the one thing that I wanted to highlight is that people experience cravings differently. Some people it's more um, cognitively, it's more thought-based. Other people, it's more physiological, so it's more uh, feelings. You get a feeling in your stomach, a tightness in your chest, um, kind of smelling it, that's another really common one. You can kind of smell what the drug was, even when it's not present. And then coping with cravings is an important strategy they're out. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the ability of the prefrontal cortex to remember those coping skills Remember what you're supposed to do in that moment, and remember why you're supposed to use the coping skills. That's impaired right off the bat. So the behavioral plans to avoid those high-risk situations, that is first and foremost, because remembering these is not always easy to do in the moment, which is also the importance of structure and the supports of support here. Um, and when we think about coping with craving, um, oftentimes folks think that using is inevitable. If they have a craving, there's no other option. Because historically, that's typically what happened. When they had a craving, they used it again. And so it's important to acknowledge that it doesn't have to be that way. Your brain has changed in a way to set you up for failure, but it's not your destiny. It doesn't have to. With support, with structure, um, with scheduling, you can, with coping skills, you can make a different choice and have a different behavioral outcome. I actually like this, I like this visualization a little bit better here. When we think about triggers, thoughts, cravings, and use. It is like a snowball. It goes downhill or just a ball rolling down a hill. The faster you go, the further you go down the hill, the more speed that you pick up, the harder it is to stop it. Uh, the easiest is to avoid the trigger. Uh, I Great. Sometimes you can do it. Not always possible. Sometimes they're unavoidable. They're surprises. If you can identify the thought, that's an opportunity to prevent the cascade from going further. That's a little bit easier. 
If the thought escalates, if you don't do something about the thought to intervene, it builds, it builds, it builds into a craving. At the craving point, it's harder to intervene, but there still are opportunities to make a different alternate outcome to prevent the craving from leading to you. So what are some strategies that you guys have used with your clients to cope with craving? Talk it out to yourself. Talk about the craving. Talk about if I do go pick up some crack, this is what's going to happen. This is what the outcome is going to be. Even kind of pulling out, like, I love those coping cards. Write down a few of those examples beforehand. Pull it out of your pocket. All right. If I do pick up, if I score, this is what's going to happen to me. Talking about it out loud is definitely really helpful. So a written plan for who can I call? Who can I talk to? Is it a family member? Is it a sponsor? Is it a friend? And also, what are the parameters? Like, who can I call? at which times, because some people you can call anytime, other people, if you call them at three in the morning, they're not gonna pick up, they're not gonna be helpful, but thinking through that, what are some ways to self-soothe as well, those written reminders. Yeah, so distract yourself. Pull out your external trigger chart, <laughs> go to your thermometer, any of these low-risk activities, these are activities that you can keep yourself busy with where you're not as likely to be exposed to a trigger in that particular moment. And that can be anything, and it's going to depend on the individual. Some people going for a walk around the block is going to expose you to a whole bunch of other triggers along the way, so that might not be so good for them, but is it music that they can that calms them down? Is it um, uh, talking to a friend? Is it playing a video game? Like Whatever it is going to be, those um, engaging in other activities to keep them busy. You guys highlighted a number of these already by talking about it, talking about it with yourself, talking about it with other people, engaging in other low-risk activities. Um, uh, the uh, other one, people have different terms for this. Surf the craving, or urge surfing, or riding the wave. People have all kinds of variations on it, but the general concept is uh, grounding yourself and reminding yourself that cravings don't last forever. And just like in the ocean, when the wave comes up, it builds and builds, and it feels really scary, but the wave always comes down the other side. It, it, it's just basic physics. It has to come down at some point. It can't escalate up forever. And so if you can ride that wave and surf with it, it you can come down on the other side. Um, I like to think about the example with anxiety as well. When you are at 10 out of 10, the peak absolute most anxious that you can be, you feel completely physiologically activated. It feels like it's going to last forever, but it can't. It's physiologically impossible to be at that 10 out of 10 anxiety forever. It always gets easier. It always calms down on the other side. And if you can remind yourself, this craving won't last forever. I need to hang in there. Maybe I go for a walk. Maybe I call my, my, my sponsor. Um, I call my buddy. I do something else, I can ride the wave. You know, In the absence of the drug being present, and in the absence of additional triggers, cravings can last you know, upwards around 30-ish minutes or so, and then it tends to subside. So what a lot of the, the studies show. In the absence of the drug, and in the absence of additional um, triggers, it can extend that. Um, thought stopping as well. Um, it, it's a little bit different Thought stopping in this context is really just bringing awareness to the thoughts and reminding yourself to engage in your other coping skills. 
Because if you just say, like, don't think about a pink elephant, don't think about a pink elephant, don't think about a pink elephant, you're going to think about a pink elephant, yeah. Um, thought stopping and mental health, does it, it, is it known to be as effective? But here, the goal is ground yourself, acknowledge the thoughts, and then use these other coping skills while you're at it. Go for a walk. Um, call your sponsor. Um, uh, uh, play a video game. Eat, eat a meal because you haven't yet. Um, people use different techniques. Do whatever, what, whatever works for you, whatever works for the individual. Some people talk about the rubber band method. You know, if you have like a hair tie or a rubber band and you notice that you're thinking about using, you're starting to have a craving, a gentle snap, just as a reminder. Some people visualize, like literally visualize a giant stop sign or a light switch during our normal. Um, just as a reminder, okay, I'm thinking about using, I need to do something, because if I don't, I'm going to relapse. I'm going to get into the grave if I don't do something to address it. Prayer and meditation as well. Uh, relaxation skills, mindfulness, meditation can be useful too. So the, these basic kind of behavioral strategies involve identifying those high and low risk situations. The follow-up to that is creating a recovery plan here. And this is something that Clients often groan about, and they are not thrilled about doing it, but it is so critically important. Structure in early recovery is essential. It is so essential to keep busy and to do things with your time. Without structure, without a schedule, that's making a choice to relapse at the end of the day. So um, without structure, people will relapse again. It makes them vulnerable to encountering the high-risk situations um, that they might have a tough time here. This creating a daily recovery plan is one of the early behavioral strategies as well here. Um, they need to have things to do. Recovery is not just abstinence. It's, you've got to rebuild your life. You've got to rebuild family. You've got to rebuild purpose. You've got to rebuild school or work or volunteering. You've got to have things to do that give you purpose. Because without all of that, you're going to relapse again. It's essential to rebuild your life and finding purpose and keeping busy. Whatever that looks like for you. Um, it, it's different for different people, but whatever their values are, they need to engage in activities. And so having a recovery plan is really useful. If you're not in an inpatient setting, you're working an outpatient, clients need help with structure. Scheduling can be useful in that regard Scheduling also gives them opportunities to look ahead. What high-risk situations or what barriers or obstacles can you try to anticipate? And how can you plan for, for those that are upcoming? Um, if you have an appointment, if you got an appointment with a primary care doctor, you're getting your test results back and you're really worried about what that's going to look like, it might bring up some emotions that might be triggering for you, we can plan ahead. Um, we can try to come up with some strategies to help you along. If you've got a family event on the weekend, it's really important for you to go, um, but you know it's going to be difficult, it gives you opportunities to plan ahead. And so the fundamental message with scheduling here is staying on schedule equals staying sober. That's it. Ignoring the schedule equals using. Point blank. That's it. If you don't schedule your time, or you throw the schedule out the window and you don't look at it, you're making a choice to use. It's as simple as that. Because historically, when you don't have things to do and you don't have a plan to keep busy, 
that's when people relax. That's when people use again. And so not scheduling is making a, a conscious choice to use. Um, to, to help with that, I wanted to highlight, we also included a, a worksheet in here around scheduling. The beginning of it is talks about the importance of scheduling. With all of these worksheets, it's important to talk about the why. Why is this valuable? Why is this useful? Um, what does the client get from it? And then tie it to their experiences. So when you weren't working and you worked in school and you had lots of free time, what did you typically do? You used. You relapsed. You had setbacks. Um, when you stopped going to work or you stopped going to school, how did that affect your recovery? Oh, you relapsed. Okay. It's connected to their experiences so it feels more real to them. Um, when you had lots of free time during your day, what typically did you do in that time? Often it's around music. So it's important to connect that to their experiences. Uh, does it need to be written down? You know, what, what if I'm not organized? Uh, who decides what I schedule? That's also really, really important. This is not a schedule you're making for them to give to them for them to follow. This is their schedule. You're just the facilitator. You're just helping them writing it down thinking about different options and helping them to think about obstacles that can get in the way. But you're just the, the vessel to help them create their own schedule because they're more likely to stick with it if it comes from them as opposed to you telling them this is what you need to do or what you need to do. And it's helpful to build in flexibility into the schedule. So there's a million different types of worksheets you can use for the actual schedule itself. It doesn't really matter. Whatever works for them. Uh, the matrix manual includes one. Use whatever works for them. Uh, if they have a planner that they prefer, great. Some people prefer writing it down on a paper and pencil, great. Other people prefer to have it, like if they have a smartphone, if they use it, do they know how to use it? Um, whatever is going to work for that particular individual. It, one of the biggest complaints that comes up with scheduling is, how am I going to know what I want to do tomorrow afternoon? Like, I want to do what I want to do when I feel like it. And the, important, the important framework for that is we can schedule in all kinds of flexibility. Like, if you've got two hours in the afternoon, you don't really know what you want to do then, let's include a few different options. Pull from those low-risk activities. You can go for a walk, call your grandma, go cook dinner, read a book, there's a new show on Netflix, like whatever the thing is, if you include multiple options on there, there's still some opportunities for flexibility. But the basic message is, if you throw it out the window and you go rogue, your prefrontal cortex has to do a whole lot of work and it's still healing in that process. If you go off the schedule, you throw it out, you're making a choice to use. At the end of the day, that's really the message. And, and emphasizing that importance and the why for it. And to help that, it's important to practice what you preach. Model the skill together. So if you say you're going to start at a certain time, start on time. If you're ending the session, end it on time. Um, CBT is a very structured form of counseling. You're splitting your session into thirds. You need to respect that structure in and of itself. Uh, demonstrating that is important there. And then reinforcing it. If they don't do it, but they made an effort, Acknowledge that. Give them that positive reinforcement. Perfection isn't the goal. It's really the process that they need to do it. So um, fundamentally, um, the last thing I just wanted to talk about was relapse prevention. Um, 
relapse, as I mentioned earlier, is very common across humans. <laughs> doesn't matter if we're talking about diabetes or uh, exercise or depression or substance use. Relapse is common. It doesn't have to happen, but for many people, it's a part of the process. Um, and when you relapse in one condition, it often triggers a relapse in the other. If your anxiety symptoms suddenly get worse because you stop taking your medicine, you stop showing up to your therapist appointments, that typically leads to a relapse in your substance use and vice versa. So educating them about that long-term perspective is really important. Um, we talked about the functional analysis already to talk about triggers. You can use the exact same process to explore relapses in the past, what happened, what led up to them. Um, and then basic, and the most important message there is relapse is not a failure. It's a learning opportunity. It's a, it's a, it's a, it highlights deficiencies in the strategies, in the coping skills, in, in some component for it. We can learn from that. It is not you're starting all the way over at zero. And I definitely don't want to use it as an impetus to kick him out of treatment like we historically did. I don't know what primary care doctor would 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 see a patient. They you know the nurse they do the blood pressure cuff. They see the blood pressures through the roof and they say, oh clearly you stopped taking your medicine. You stopped exercising. Get the hell out of my office. Good luck next time. Come back when you're ready. No, they would never do that. But historically that's what we did in SUD treatment. When people relapsed, we kicked them out when they needed treatment the most. And so we want to try to reframe that. And the last thing that I'll just touch on is this abstinence violation effect. This goes back to your cognitions here. The way you think about the world affects how you feel and it affects how you behave. And how you frame relapse is really fundamental. If you have a slip up along the way and you think about, this is hopeless, I'm screwed, I'm never going to be sober, I'm never going to be able to do this. You're going to have more relapses. Instead, we want to teach them to reframe it as, you made a mistake, you had a setback, I want to try it again. I need to learn from it and do it in a different way. How can I learn from that experience? Educating around that abstinence violation uh, effect is really, really important. because This goes back to some of those cognitive processes um, that influence how we feel. I'm going to leave things there. Uh, there's a few more slides in there. This is really just an invitation for you. If this was a bit helpful, I really highly encourage you to, to seek out some more, um, more training in this. We do trainings for DMH providers very frequently in the community all the time on, on these skills and give you tools here. Um, I just wanted to leave you with where to get these worksheets and more. Uh, these come from SAMHSA's Counselor's Treatment Manual. This has been research in pretty much every main classification of drug, whether it's opioids, stimulants, marijuana, alcohol. You can use these tools. It comes from the Matrix Intensive Outpatient Manual. These worksheets and like hundreds more are available that you can get for free. The easiest way to find it is just to Google SAMHSA Counselor's Treatment Manual and you can access these. They're really, really valuable. And having that bank of worksheets and psychoeducation topics and lessons that you can engage in, both in individual and in group sessions, is really valuable. All right, awesome. Thank you so much for coming uh, to the workshop.